Welcome to Germany Elects, a world review podcast series on the German election from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, international editor of the New Statesman, and I'm very pleased to welcome listeners to this special seventh episode of Germany Elects, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, or FES, as it's known in Germany. In this episode, I'll be talking to FES president and former Social Democratic Chancellor candidate Martin Schulz about what to make of the result of Germany's election on September 26th. For me, I won all my bids on Sunday night because half a year ago, I uh, predicted that Trump will be the next Chancellor of Germany. I'll be hearing about the domestic implications of the result. We will see a lot of debates because the Social Democrats have understood in the past that they have to somehow shift to the left. That's the commentator Ulrike Herrmann. And I'll be talking about how the election could shape Germany's place in Europe and the world. Germany is the biggest economy and and the country with the most inhabitants in, in the European Union. So, yeah, it's going to play a big role. Katarina Bali, MEP. More from her later. Your trust will give me the strength to always be the first when it comes to professing and bearing witness to the new central maxim of the German people for freedom, justice and social welfare. These were the words with which the Social Democrat Friedrich Ebert became Germany's first democratically elected president in 1919. He would serve until his death in 1925 and in his will stipulated that donations at his funeral should go to the creation of a political foundation. The result, the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, is Germany's oldest. But more than just being part of Germany's political history, the FES plays a dynamic and forward-looking role in thinking about its future. It connects people and ideas in a social democratic network spanning the globe, working on projects in over 100 countries, shaping economies and societies for the decades to come. It analyzes political trends from a social democratic perspective to help build a future founded on solidarity and sound thinking. Its office in London, for example, is an important centre for the evolution of post-Brexit Anglo-German relations in the years ahead. That makes the FES a great partner with which to make sense of the result of Germany's election and to think about the country's next government. As a reminder, the result of the election on September 26th put the Social Democratic SPD in first place on 25.7%. Here's Olaf Scholz, its Chancellor candidate, announcing last Tuesday that he would seek to form a coalition with the Greens and the Conservative Liberal Free Democrats, or FDP. There was a very successful social liberal coalition in Germany from 1969 to 1982 and I'd add that it grew out of grand coalition. Willy Brandt became Chancellor in 1969. Helmut Schmidt held that role for the second part of this time. And we later had a very good time in government with the Greens. We have good memories of that too. So to form a social, ecological, liberal coalition now has foundations in the history of German governance. The momentum behind this traffic light coalition, so-called as the colours of the three parties are red, green, yellow, has only grown since then. Angela Merkel's CDU-CSU alliance has struggled to present a united front after its worst ever result, 24.1%. Its chancellor candidate, Armin Laschet, looks weaker than ever. 
Meanwhile, the two smaller kingmaker parties, the Greens and the FDP, began by talking to each other. On Friday, the two were upbeat about their ability to find compromise. Here was FTP leader Christian Lindner after that second round of discussions between the two parties. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. The federal election was a turning point. People voted against the status quo. Something new needs to be established in Germany. We are stepping up together in an open situation in which much in our country must be founded and launched anew. The sources of our prosperity, the technological basis of our public life, the possibilities for a secure, responsive and aspirational society. Nothing is certain. There are still big differences between the prospective parties of a traffic light coalition, especially between the centre-left SPD and Green parties on the one hand and the centre-right FDP on the other. But increasingly it seems like they might be able to find common ground. And the political momentum is on their side. One poll published last Friday found that 76% of Germans preferred Scholz of the SPD as Chancellor compared with just 13% for Laschet. So increasingly, the question looms. What would a traffic-like government under Olaf Scholz look like? How would the SPD see its role in leading the government? What would the priorities of such a government be? And what sort of change would it bring to Europe's largest economy? In this episode of Germany Elects, I'm teaming up with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation to find out. First up, FES President Martin Schulz. And I'd like to stress that this interview was recorded on Tuesday, September 29th. There's possibly no one better to talk about the situation of the SPD and its current result than um, Martin Schulz. Martin Schulz is joining me here in Berlin at the headquarters of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, and he has seen politics and especially social democratic politics at all levels over the course of his career. He was mayor of Wurzelen, a small town uh, near Aachen in the uh, 1990s. He was in the European Parliament from 1994 to 2017, including president of the European Parliament in the, the last of those five years. He was also leader of the SPD 2017-2018 and led the party into the last election campaign to challenge Angela Merkel in 2017. He's now the president of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. Martin Schulz, thank you very much for finding the time. Thank you. So let's start first of all with the election result itself. Obviously a great success for the Social Democrats in difficult circumstances. How do you interpret it? What do you see as the message from German voters to the, the party and to the Bundestag overall? I think half a year ago, nobody would predict such an outcome of the general election. Uh, for me, I won all my bids uh, on Sunday night because uh, half a year ago, I uh, predicted that Scholz will be the next Chancellor of Germany. And my feeling was, until the summer break, nobody cared about the election. People were uh, interested in the uh, development of the pandemic, uh, can the children go to the kindergarten or to school or uh, must we continue with homeschooling? Is a holiday outside Germany in southern Europe possible or not? Are these regions uh, with a high degree of risk in the diseases? Should I be isolated after return? All this uh, kind of stuff was important for people, but not the general election. The Bundestagswahl was nobody carrying my constituency. I could feel it quite clear. People didn't uh, care about the election. After the summer break, in August, when they came back, immediately they perceived that 
A, there is an election in B, Angela Merkel is not running anymore. And then the open question was, who from three candidates is able to replace Angela Merkel on a national, especially on a European, but also on a worldwide level? And looking to the three candidates, what relatively clear, that's only in a short time clear, that's only Olaf Scholz who has the experience. And therefore, I think he won the election. It is a very personal decision. It has been remarkable how united the party has seen over the last months. And it's interesting that even though you have a leadership from a different political tendency from the chancellor candidate, the party's held together. How do you think that's come about? Uh, because I think particularly people in the Labour Party, some other international counterparts to the SPD might be wondering, how, can, how could that be replicated where we are? I think this is an enormous success, especially of the Secretary General of the party, Lars Klingbeil, who, with his very well-reflected, balanced approach to his style, especially, to bring people together and to convince them that there is no single reason in the party, in an election campaign, to be divided. And, uh, that sticking together and, and, and cooperating brings much more advantages and... This is in all election campaign. Key brings mandates and seats in the parliament. If you are angry as you may be, but this perspective, I could win a seat, creates discipline. And Klingbeil convinced a lot of, especially young people, you saw it yesterday in our group meeting, 104 new elected members, around 65 younger than 35 years, this is an enormous change and this fresh wind of young people is an enormous advantage for the party. But I think it was especially the party chairman and chairwoman Esken and Walter Boyans who refrained from the high tension they created in before within the party, especially against Scholz. And they, yeah, they contributed in my eyes a lot to this, to this coherence in the party. By, by supporting whatever it costs, uh, Scholz's strategy, quiet, committed, and experienced. This is uh, what he showed to voters, and party was entirely behind these uh, three elements. Beyond all details uh, and, and, and differences in details, the general line was uh, for the first time since decades taken by everybody. Yeah. And that was the, the recipe of the success. Do you think that will hold? Because it's been noted that among these new younger MPs, a lot of them are associated with the, the users, the young, young the youth wing of the party. Some of them, I think, are associated a bit more with the left. Do you think that the, the unity we saw in the campaign risks breaking down now we're entering the new parliamentary period? No, I think not. The was uh, tangible yesterday in the group meeting. We had yesterday a group meeting with the people leaving the parliament and the newcomers. It was, in my eyes, my feeling was it was tangible that even the most left-wing young people understood that uh, this victory is a victory of Olaf Scholz and that uh, supporting the government led by a chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is in our common interest. So you know Olaf Scholz well. A lot of people around the world are starting to acquaint, familiarize themselves with him as the seemingly the front runner to be Angela Merkel's successor. How would you describe him from your experiences of him, particularly to someone who maybe didn't know him that well? This is a man with a long-lasting 
political career, young socialist, then a young member of parliament, secretary general of the Social Democratic Party with Gerhard Schröder, suffering a lot in the party by attacks of the left wing of the party, to which he belonged uh, himself at the beginning of his career, but uh, Agenda 2010, his reform program of the Schröder government, was in the party highly controversial, discussed, and he was the secretary general endorsing it, and he did it with a, with a kind of cold blood, but paying high prices of bad results in the election in, on the congresses of the party. Then people had, for the first time in the mid of the uh, first decade of our century, the feeling he's young, but his career is broken, and then he came back as vice chairman of the group, as uh, mayor of Hamburg, in the meantime as minister of labor, uh, and uh, man with a real uh, long career and he is he is extremely disciplinated he has a kind of auto control which is in my eyes really exceptional he is strate a man with a strategic thinking and he's quiet he's a man who even in in, in moments of defeats never loses his uh, this this self control that makes him strong it uh, creates on the other side often the feeling that he is not the most socializing guy and people feel a certain distance but as nearer you come as more you understand that this is Partially true, but on the other hand, he is a very open-minded leader. I'm reminded of that uh, phrase ascribed to Angela Merkel, in calmness lies, lies strength. It it's, seems a, to... it's the program of Olaf Scholz, for sure. Yeah, 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 interesting. What sort of chancellor do you think he'd make? What can his counterparts, on, the, if he does become chancellor, what can his counterparts on the world stage expect from him? Reliability. This is a man sticking to his promises, and never promising things he can't stick to. And that creates a kind of certainty in cooperating with Olaf Scholz. You can rely on him. A reliable man. So he said he wants to form a coalition with the Greens and the FDP. He said he wants it to be, in his words, uh, social, ecological and liberal. Those are three quite distinct political traditions. And obviously, we've seen how the SPD can work with the Greens, including in government. But obviously, the big question is, how, where does the role of the FDP fit in there? How confident are you that Olaf Scholz can draw together these political traditions and these political philosophies going beyond party policy into a coherent government? I think the announcements of the last days after the election on Monday and uh, yesterday are the answer to your question. In a coalition of three different parties, the three philo philosophies you just mentioned uh, must have a place. There is social responsibility for which the social democrats in Germany are giving a guarantee, to, especially to vulnerable uh, parts of our society with what we call the minimum salary uh, as a guarantee and uh, pensions who should be uh, guaranteed a decent life even after your life after your labor life secondly the climate change challenges are the biggest one of our times and therefore to combine the enormous challenges with a kind of 
responsible system of financing it will be the compromise between social democrats and the greens higher energy costs for example is for a lot of paid civil servants in berlin mitte in the center of berlin no problem in my constituency coal mining constituency where people will lose in the coal mines their jobs it is an enormous problem to balance it, uh, to tell to people we can't continue with a carbon-based energy policy. Uh, we have to finance renewables and the higher costs are necessary, but you should not pay the loan. You should be supported. This is this uh, combination between the Greens and the Social Democrats. And for the Liberals to join uh, such a government means nothing else than the state alone will not tackle the challenges. What we need is private investments and innovation from industrial and middle-sized companies especially. And this is the electorate of the liberals. And uh, to create a frame in which also these people could contribute to this uh, social responsible ecological change. This is the program of Olaf Scholz. Just one more question on this possible coalition. Obviously, as you've said yourself, economic policy would be one of the big areas of, of potential difference. And if you look at the tax and spending policies of the three possible parties, the FDPs is quite different. Tax cu- the tax cuts that benefit different groups than those of the FPD and the Greens. Do you really think that middle ground can be found there between two fundamentally centre-left parties with an economically progressive heritage and a party that, it may not be a helpful phrase, but many would say is more le- neoliberal in, in, in outlook? Do you think there's a compromise to be done there? Yeah, I think there will be a compromise. And there is also the need for a compromise because we are sitting here in front of the North Rhine-Westphalian representation where Armin Laschet uh, has his seat for the time being. It is, I must admit, I know him very well. Laschet is uh, is my neighbor. He is uh, living six uh, kilometers from... uh, A fellow Aachen man. Yeah, yeah, a fellow Aachen man. And we served together six years in the European Parliament. I know him very well and he is a decent person, but it is for me, I I know no example in European politics where somebody loses 9% in the evening claiming to lead the country. This is, you can't organize the fourth industrial nation of the world governmentally on the level of who loses most will lead the country. This is impossible. And therefore, I think what happened yesterday also in the CDU group and in the, in the bureau of the party showed that uh, the party is fragmented, the leader is weakened uh, and contested. And I think they are not able to form a government. Therefore, I think Greens, Social Democrats and Liberals must find a compromise and will find a compromise. Or you, you have another grand coalition led by the SPD? I think this is this is excluded. That would break the coherence in my eyes of the SPD. But I think the coalition between the three parties will uh, sooner than expected uh, uh, a compromise will be possible. What about the Europe policy of a future? Let's say let's assume a traffic light ample government under Olaf Scholz. He's his European instincts are obviously very mainstream, social democratic. Do you see him maybe coming closer to Emmanuel Macron on some subjects, maybe, I don't know, the Eurozone or European defence than Angela Merkel has? Angela Merkel, in my eyes, was a phenomenon. When I was in Brussels and also here in Berlin, people told me, ah, the European Union is in a complete stagnation, no solutions, uh, never uh, moving forward. 
And the same people told me a second later, but Angela Merkel is the biggest solution maker. And then I, I raised always the question, if Angela Merkel is the biggest solution raiser and Europe is on the other side in a stagnation, where is she uh, lose solving problems? Could you tell me the place I go there? So this was the biggest contradiction I ever saw in my political career in Brussels, that uh, somebody who was a world champion in postponing uh, confrontations, controversial debates and solutions were taken as the biggest solution creator, Angela Merkel. In reality, Angela Merkel uh, didn't answer to Nicolas Sarkozy. She didn't answer to François Hollande, a close friend, friend of mine. He was, I was in the same mandate. He was president of France, president of the European Parliament, exactly five years in parallel. And I could follow here in Berlin, like in Paris, very near how this functioned. And uh, even Macron, with all his proposals, no answer from Germany. Therefore, yes, Olaf Scholz is for sure more committed to contribute to uh, European to, to necessary European solutions than Angela Merkel was. And normally Angela Merkel would have uh, taken this as the big success of Merkel and Macron. She didn't because in her own party, the resistance against the solutions was strong. They were nearer to Mark Rutte than to Angela Merkel. Therefore, the way in which Macron, Scholz and, you should add, the third G7 country within the European Union, Italy, Mario Draghi as prime minister is going, I think that will be a triangle bringing the European Union strongly forward. Scholz, Macron and Draghi, this is another Europe than we had until today. I've put this point of view to various people. Are we going to see this new trio in Europe? And and some people have pushed back saying, yes, Olaf Scholz is a social democrat. Yes, he's probably going to be a more open partner to someone like Macron or Draghi. But at the end of the day, he's still a German chancellor. There are still German taboos around a debt union or transfers. Yes, we had this recovery fund in the exceptional circumstances of COVID, but we're now talking about bringing back the stability and growth pact constraints. And he isn't going to want to have that fight with his own electorate or with perhaps a finance minister from the FDP, maybe Christian Lindner, the party's leader. What do you say to that? First of all, Lindner and Macron are sitting in the European Parliament, the same group. There's already an advantage. Albeit perhaps different parts of it. Yeah, but this is already an advantage that both belong to the liberal uh, group in uh, Europe. Secondly, the interpretation of uh, the stability and growth pact by those people who only call it a stability pact will be replaced by those who say this is a growth pact. And with more investments, this is by the way also the program of the liberals, that we need more investments, also more public investment, drawing private investment behind and is in my eyes the bigger change that uh, uh, now in the European Council, three heads of governments will see who put the importance on the growth part of the stability and growth pact. Uh, the stability and growth pact is existing and the rules of this pact have to be respected. But to put the attention more on the stability side led to this philosophy of austerity, which was this is an experience a lot of countries in Europe made contraproductive exactly to what the other side of this pact should be, a growth pact. And now with the structure of the recovery fund to create in a com 
bind uh, manner. Private and public and private investments, that will be the way the European Union will go, I'm absolutely sure, after the building of a new government here in Germany. Mm -hmm. One more, in fact, one final question on a European point. Some have said that, particularly if Olaf Scholz does become Chancellor, we're seeing a sort of, something of a comeback for European social democracy. We, the Social Democrats won the election in Norway. They now govern every one of the Scandinavian countries. They're in power in Spain and Portugal too. If they end up leading Germany, I think they'll be the largest party family in the European Council. The Christian Democrats have been struggling elsewhere as well. Do you see that as a sort of single phenomenon? Are we talking about some European social democratic comeback or is it more about local circumstances in those individual countries? No, there is a certain shift to the left in Europe because people after 15, 20 years of this conservative and neoliberal way of countries in Europe understand better that the gap, the society gap gap becoming more and more a risk for our democracies this and these are two phenomena phenomena on one hand it is a social gap in salaries in, in life conditions in urban areas in london in paris in madrid or here in berlin or in rome people even with two high salaries can't finance their daily life. And if this is the case in an urban area, you can realize what happens in a rural area. This gap leads to victories of Trumpists, destroyers of democracy, populists of all kind, but with one common goal, to destroy our democratic system. And more and more people understand that to overcome this uh, gap is the most effective counter-strategy against uh, this risk for our democracy. Martin Schultz, we've covered a lot of ground here from the election through the coalition to the European picture and the structure of, Euro of German and European society. I, th I think we've, that will be of great interest to our listeners. So thank you very much for your time joining us on this podcast. No problem. Thank you very much. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, the FES works extensively outside of Germany as well as inside it. You can find out more about its work in the UK at fes-london.org, in the EU at brussels.fes.de, and in the US at dc.fes.de. I'd also recommend a look at its English language journal, International Politics and Society, or IPS, which draws on the whole global network of the FES to cover global affairs from a social democratic perspective. You can read that at ips-journal.eu. We will, of course, put all of those links in the show notes. Well, we're now going to go into a bit more detail about what the election result means for German politics and the policy of the next German government. And for that, I'm really pleased to be joined by two people who can tell us a lot about that. First of all, Jens Zimmermann, who is a SPD MP in the Bundestag, representing the state of Hesse. He's also part of the German-British Parliamentary Friendship Group and is a recognised expert on digital policy, a very important area for the future of Germany and the next government. Welcome to Germany Elects, Jens. Hello. 
And I'm also joined by Ulrike Herrmann, who's one of the most prominent progressive journalists here in Germany. She is an economics editor on the newspaper Taz, which readers will know as a, a powerful and radical voice in the German media. And she's also great to talk to about what the next government looks like and what it might mean for, for the country. Uh, thank you for joining us, Ulrike. Yeah, hello. So let's start within the Bundestag and indeed within the SPD. It is the largest party in the new Bundestag. It has the most MPs. It looks set most likely to lead the next government. So Jens, from your position within the, the parliamentary group of the SPD, how would you characterize the state of that group? You know, a lot of new MPs, particularly younger MPs. What would you say sort of sets it apart from the others? Yeah, as you mentioned, the interesting thing is 50% of the parliamentary party are freshmen. So this is going to be very interesting. The parliamentary party is now younger. It's more diverse. We have 42% women and we have 39 new members with uh, migrational backgrounds. This is really fresh. It's diverse. And um, I would say hungry for change. This has the potential for some interesting debates in the next four years. Ulrika, on that, we saw a remarkable recovery of the SPD in the final month or so of the, the campaign, until then a lot of us had written the party off. Do you think it's ready for, for its new leadership role that for many will come as a bit of a surprise? Well, yes, I think that the Social Democrats are ready for leadership because they've been taking part in the Grand Coalition, as it was called, the government formed by the Conservatives and the Social Democrats for more than 12 years now, all, all combined. So, you know, it's nothing new for the Social Democrats to rule. And I think that Jens is right that there will be no big discussions within the party when it comes to ruling. But nonetheless, of course, we will see a lot of debates because the Social Democrats have understood in the past that they have to somehow shift to the left to focus on social issues if they want to keep their image of being true Social Democrats and not just another version of conservatives. And of course, this is very hard to do a kind of social democratic politics if you have a coalition together with the liberals. And this is what will almost probably happen. So I think that the party will be stressed by being in a coalition with the Liberals, but that's now without alternative. Do you think they can find common ground with the Liberals? And of course, probably less difficult, the Greens as well. But do you think the three of them can forge a coherent project for government? Yes, I think so. I, the program of the Greens and the SPD were in fact very similar. There were hardly any differences except for the question of what to do with the coal but except for that they are almost identical. The main issue is whether you can find common ground with the Liberals. And I think this will work out somehow because you know the Liberals must get into government. It's their main reason of being a party. They want to have tax cuts for the rich and that's only possible if you are part of the government. So I think in the end there will be a compromise, but I think that the compromise will include some tax cuts for the rich, because otherwise the Liberals can't take part in any kind of government. And that is, of course, very hard to sell to the left parts of uh, the Social Democrats, that the rich are getting a presence again. Jens, how do you see that? Do you think that, you know, particularly with a range of ideological views within the SPD as well, can this sort of agenda for the FDP be reconciled with the, the priorities of the Social Democrats? 
I think there are many fields where it is possible because having in mind that for the last 16 years, we had a, a conservative chancellor. And so there was not a lot of space for true modernization of the society. We had some uh, aspects which Angela Merkel made possible. But nevertheless, I think that there is a, a broad range of topics where Greens, Liberals and Social Democrats can really achieve something. Of course, you could argue the old Bill Clinton saying it's the economy, stupid. And yeah, up to a certain degree, it is. But nevertheless, I think it is doable. And I don't know if we will see really presence uh, to the rich. But what I know from two and a half years of behind the scene talks with also liberal MPs is that very often we have similar ideas and similar visions, but we are looking at different target groups. So if we're able to listen to each other, I think it's possible to really find some modernization for the German society, which is desperately needed. Ulrike, obviously the, the, the big generational challenge facing Germany particularly, but also Western democracies more widely, is the transition to a, a carbon neutral economy. And it's an area where Germany, you know, lags behind some others in terms of its emissions per capita, for example. Do you think that a traffic light has the right combination of policies and instincts to improve Germany's record on that front in terms of whether it's moving out of coal, changing the transport infrastructure, rethinking the German industrial model? Do you see that ambition there? Well, I think there will be progress on uh, climate protection. And I also think that the Liberals will share in this effort because many of the bosses of the uh, leaders of the big companies, they want to be sure what to invest in, when to invest, which kind of policy, climate policy will be followed on in the next years. The whole climate in the whole society somehow leans towards climate protection. This is something the liberals can't ignore. So they will always agree on climate protection policies that include subsidies for companies. Whenever there is money flowing to I repeat myself, to the rich and to the wealthy, the liberals will be part of the project. But they will not accept any kinds of constraints. For example, they will not accept any kind of speed limit on uh, German streets. For example, they, it will be hard negotiating with them when it comes to caps on, let's say, carbon dioxide or whatever. They will only agree to subsidies. For example, when it's about charging electric cars, of course, we, you need those uh, charging boxes almost everywhere in Germany, they will be in favor of that because, of course, they want to push and protect the German car industry. But it gets difficult when it comes to hard decisions uh, concerning climate change. Thank you very much, uh, first of all, Jens Zimmermann. Thank you. And thank you very much, Ulrike Herrmann. Yeah, thank you as well. Naturally, a big part of securing public investment in the 2020s is making sure big firms pay their share of tax. And the Brussels office of the FES recently published a great policy brief on how to build on the international agreement on a minimum corporate tax rate. I'd recommend reading that and we'll put it in the show notes. After the break. I believe the main concern in many capitals around the world is um, that there might be, let's say, a German vacuum for some time. And they're anxiously waiting to see who will be in the driver's seat in Berlin for the coming years. That's Anja Wehleschuk, who will be joining me shortly.
Well, from the domestic picture to the international one, and I'm now joined by two experts on Germany's place in the world to talk about the election result and what it means beyond Germany's own borders. Katharina Bali is a member of the European Parliament. Previously, she served as Federal Labour Minister and as Federal Family Minister. She's also been Secretary General of the SPD. So a great person to talk about the European resonance of this election result. Thank you for joining us, Katharina. Pleased to be with you. Anja Vila-Schuk is the editor of the IPG Journal, which is a journal of international politics and society associated with the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. She previously worked at the German embassy in Washington, D.C. and for the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Amman. Thank you for joining us, Anja. Thank you. So let's start at a European level. Uh, Katharina, from your point of view in the European Parliament and, of course, as an SPD politician, how do you see this result from a European point of view? What does it mean for the EU more widely? Well, first of all, the European Union has been really staring at at this election. It was enormously important for just about every member state and everybody was aware of this. And I think that most of them are, are quite relieved because they know Olaf Scholz. He has been very active when it came to the recovery package. He gave a great input of solidarity and they know that he understands how how the European Union works and what it needs, even though, of course, he once said a German finance minister is a German finance minister, but he knows what to do, what Europe is about. And so I think that the reactions are are hugely positive. And it will be important because Germany is the biggest economy and and the country with the most inhabitants in in the European Union. So, yeah, it's going to play a big role. I think some people are looking at the possibility of a traffic-like government and trying to work out what sort of change would this mean for Germany's Europe policy, particularly seen from Paris, for example, where Emmanuel Macron has a a kind of an ambitious agenda where some would say that the previous German government didn't always meet him where he wanted it to. Do you see that changing under a traffic-like government, also looking at the differences between the parties that would be part of that government? Yes, I do. When it came to the recovery package, Olaf Scholz connected very intensely with Bruno Le Maire, with his French colleague. So there is already um, a a very good uh, collaboration between him and the French government. When it comes to Macron, he is very good at delivering great speeches. But when it comes to concrete action, it becomes a lot more difficult. And it's true that Angela Merkel didn't meet him on any level of this, but with Olaf Scholz, it will not only be words, and then we will see the wonderful words of Emmanuel Macron really lead to, because that was not always easy in the past. Emmanuel Macron will have to deliver more than speeches then also. What about the world more widely? Obviously, there are big questions about German defence policy, about the transatlantic relationship, about relations with Russia and China. Wasn't discussed a great deal in the election campaign, I have to say, but but important still. What do you think the result means on that that wider point about Germany's place globally? I, I think, as you pointed out, um, it was very interesting to note um, that among Germany's partners, um, there was quite a bit of surprise about the small role that foreign policy played in Europe and the campaigns. But I guess uh, the ugly truth is that you can't win an election on foreign policy. And I think in many foreign policy questions, a change of government will not mean a radical change. And uh, so many um, of our partners rest assured that there will be um, stability uh, in the relations with Germany. I think um, 
it comes to play when you look at nuances like in the um, Russia and uh, Ukraine conflict. You might remember the memorable visit of the party leader of the Green Party, where he promised um, arms despite his party's line on the issue and then had to row back. And in in Russia, um, Merkel left quite a strong legacy. So I think at the moment, our partners have a priority that the negotiations and the coalition agreement move ahead fast, because many still remember that four years ago, the negotiations dragged on for months. So um, I believe the main concern in many capitals around the world is um, that there might be, let's say, a German vacuum for some time, and they're anxiously waiting to see who will be in the driver's seat in Berlin for the coming years. The question I'd like to put to you both now following on from that is, and I don't want to talk too much about Emmanuel Macron in a podcast about Germany, but the French president's been pushing this idea of strategic autonomy, so a Europe more able to work on its own and sometimes independently from the United States. Obviously, the Afghanistan debacle and also to some extent this new submarines deal between the UK, US and Australia has driven this up the agenda, including some recognition that perhaps Joe Biden would be happy to see Europe follow that that agenda more closely. Starting with you, Katerina, what is the sort of social democratic take on this? Because the SPD is a very pro-European party family. It's a very a, a party that looks a lot to, to Paris as a close partner, but it's also one quite committed to Germany's transatlantic vocation. Where would you say that the SPD generally comes down on that? Well, I believe that Europe has to has to step up to its responsibilities, and that is also the social democratic position. That means that on the one hand, yes, we do have to become stronger as a European Union when it comes to foreign policy and also defense. It does not mean that we actually do the same thing as the US do, but as Europeans. I think we have to be very well aware that we have a completely different history, a different composition. We have an extreme diversity within the member states when it comes to these topics. And therefore, I think it's going to be a long way. For example, if you look at the relations towards Russia, even countries that are usually very close, like Poland and Hungary, have completely opposite attitude towards Russia. And when it comes to defense, if you look at at Germany, where you need a decision by the parliament for every step you take, more or less, or at least the decisions for any engagement abroad. And then you see France, where it's the president himself who can take these decisions. You will have to find a lot of compromises before this actually becomes reality. So perhaps we could also say a German foreign minister is a German foreign minister, as well as the point on finance. Anya, could you come in on that? And I wonder if you could say something on the the relationship with China as well, because I think that part of this strategic autonomy discourse has to do with perhaps Europe having a, a aligning with the US in some aspects of its competition with China, but not all of them. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and, and how the election affects that. I think there's an understanding among social democrats that there are many essential problems that can't be solved without China. We can't have a conflict with China and uh, and work with them on fundamental issues like climate policy or overcoming the pandemic. So I think there is a consensus that we need to find a way how to effectively work with China. And I want to come back to something that um, Katerina said. I think that when we look at the conflicts that the European Union is facing internally at the moment, this could be a game changer for the European Union. And I think a strong German leadership under Olaf Scholz will do a great job in addressing the issue of working towards cohesion among the European member states 
while respecting diversity, not only in how political systems are shaped, but also with regard to their history, while of course um, stressing the values that we share in the EU. Thank you very much for that. Thank you both to Katerina Bali and to Anja Vilashuk for joining me for this whistle-stop discussion of the international ramifications of the German election. So thank you, Katerina, in Brussels. Thank you. And thank you to Anya here in Berlin. Thank you very much, Jeremy. As a reminder, if you read German, you can catch up on the IPG, which Anya edits, at ipg-journal.de. And you can find its English language counterpart at ips-journal.eu. That's it for this special episode of Germany Elects, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. Many thanks to the FES for their support. And that's also it for Germany Elects. We started back in early August and have followed the German election campaign, the twists and turns, the big issues and personalities, the results and the aftermath over the two months since then. It has been quite a journey and it's not yet over. Coalition talks are just starting and as we've heard in this episode, the possibilities are fascinating. So while this will be the last regular episode of Germany Elects, We might just do a follow-up podcast later this year with an update on the new government. But in the meantime, I'd like to say a big thank you to all of our guests over these past seven episodes. Ben Walker, Constanze Stelzenmüller, Kwe Pham, Liana Fix, Julia Ganter, Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook, Tariq Abu-Khadi, Philippa Siegel-Gluckner, Christian Ordendahl, Michaela Küffner, Alex Clarkson, Emily Tamkin, Philippa Nuttall, Sven Egenter, Martin Schulz, Jens Zimmermann, Ulrike Herrmann, Katharina Bali, and Anja Wähler-Schuck. I'd also like to say a big thanks to my producer, Adrian Bradley, and to you, the listeners, for joining Germany Elects for this remarkable period in German and European politics. The next big European election is France's presidential vote next April, and I'm thrilled to be able to announce that we will be doing a New Statesman France Elects podcast for that, launching in the new year. So look out for that. You've been listening to Germany Elects, a special World Review pop-up podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. You can read all of our German election coverage at newstatesman.com slash Germany and follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cliff. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley 